0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Debug Log episode 50, yep it has been 50 episodes, pretty cool eh? Yeah, uh, we're super excited about this episode, not only because it's number 50, but also because we interviewed the one and only Jesse Shell, author of the book The Art of Game Design, one of the books that we have mentioned in the show before and it has been really helpful for us and a guide in some of the episodes like the prototype episode. So anyway, in this episode we ask Jesse about the 4 elements in which he separates a game. We also ask him about game balancing, specifically balancing fighting games, you know that I love those, <laughs> I had to ask him about that. So if you want to know what Jesse has to say about these topics and many more, keep listening to the Debug Log episode 50. You're listening to the Debug Log, a podcast about game development. My name is Eduardo Castillo Fernandez,
1: and my name is Andrew Curry. My name doesn't have as much of a ring at the end of that. Eduardo <laughs> Castillo Fernandez, as yours does, <laughs>
0: because I have three.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, you always bring it home.
0: Yeah. So um, today is our fiftieth uh, episode. So Yay! <laughs> <laughs> we have a really special interview for for this one. But before we go into that um let's remind you that please leave us some um, reviews and in the in iTunes because it really helps um, to to increase the popularity of, of the podcast and it we really appreciate it so please go ahead and do that yep
1: absolutely.
0: So like I was saying for this episode we have a special guest we have Jesse Shell. The author of the book, The Art of Game Design, A Book of Lenses, which we love and uh, yeah, if we're you still guys reading have because it's a, <laughs> it's a big book. Yeah, but. it's like,
1: a. I mean, it. Uh, this is a book that we've known about for a long time because usually when you look at game design, you find a couple big books. There's one, Rules of Play, which is a, a good book and it kind of reads like a textbook <laughs> too. It, like, it has a lot of information and I like that one and it's cool and it has a lot of neat information and really kind of... It puts a lot of terms to game design uh, paradigms and stuff, and it's great. But I think you turn. I have always saw the art of game design, and I never... You had mentioned it, and we started pulling some resources in earlier episodes. I know our scope episode and our game design document and our prototype one, too. We started like pulling quotes and stuff from that book, and then we both bought it. It's like a $60 book on Amazon, so don't get scared. But it's like the best book on not just game design just the entire process right from it's about we talked about in our scope episode like game design as a function of producing a game you know that you can make and that's what this book's about basically i think
0: yeah i really think that uh you're going to love this interview like we did so yep keep listening
1: all right roll it
0: Hello, everybody. Uh, in this episode, uh, the Debug crew has the pleasure and honor to talk to um, Jesse Shell, founder of um, Shell Games, and also author of *The Art of Game Design*, one of my favorite books about game development. So, uh, welcome to the show, Jesse.
2: Hey, glad to be here.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, before we start. Um, with the meat of the episode, could you tell us a little bit about your background? I'm pretty sure that everybody would love to to hear that.
2: Oh yeah, sure. So let's see. I've (laughs) been making computer games for a little while now. I started just as a hobby probably in about uh, 1982, and then I started doing it professionally um, a bit later. I went to school at Rensselaer for computer science, and then graduate school at Carnegie Mellon for uh, uh, computer networking, and worked for IBM, worked for the phone company for a bit, but then got a job at Disney at the Virtual Reality Studio. Uh, We started making all kinds of Disney VR stuff back in the 90s. Wow. Um, Made a place down there called Disney Quest, which was uh, pretty popular, and then uh, did a game called Toontown Online for Disney. Uh, which was the first MMO I'd ever worked on. and about 2002, I ended up leaving Disney and came and started teaching at Carnegie Mellon and started up a game studio on the side, which is Shell Games, which I've been running for, I guess, about 14 years now. And we've made a bunch of games, I don't know, about 30 games or so, and I still teach at the school for all that time, and um, like that. So making games, you know, that kind of thing. And I wrote a book at some point.
1: <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good segue. What uh, After all that experience, like what was kind of inside of you that led you to write the art of game design?
2: Yeah, so I was inspired by some other books that I'd uh, encountered. I really liked Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. I was really that yeah. uh, made a big impression on me, and also Magic and Showmanship by Henning Nelms, a book about uh, sort of the I don't know about how to do magic really well. And I kept thinking about general patterns that apply to all kinds of entertainment. So initially the book did not start out as a book about game design. It really was, the, the concept was a book called Understanding Entertainment. And I'd been collecting notes on it even back when I was at Disney. And after I started teaching, somebody approached me about, hey, would you like to write a technical book about Panda 3D, which was an open source game engine that Disney had made. It was kind of a pre-Unity Unity. Mm-hmm. And and I said, no, I really wouldn't want to do that. Um, but I, ha- I do want to do this book about understanding entertainment. And they said, yeah, no one wants to buy that book. Um, but we are looking for a book about game design. Would you consider that? And I'd been teaching a class about game design. And I realized the class on game design was largely using these principles of entertainment. And so I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then five years later, I wrote the, I got the book done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, that's what I like about it, too, because it, it, it's kind of fooling too when you see the art of game design, but it's really practically based, too, and it's li- it's really about production development, too. We've done a few episodes of our show. We just did a recent one about strategically thinking about the scope of your game, and we we introduced that idea that is th- that those type of production ideas and some of those development ideas, they're really about game design from the beginning. It's not about cutting stuff out of your game later on. It's about thinking the, about the most effective game you can make at the beginning, you know, when it's just an idea, and it's just paper, and that's it. And so that's what I really appreciate about the book, that it feels like it's, and you tell all the stories of times at Disney and the games you've made that it really shows that these aren't just these theories in your head. A lot of it is just practical advice on how to, from design to making that production process happen as smoothly as possible.
0: Yeah, actually, one of the the main sources for our episode about prototyping is the art of game design because it's like you say, Andrew. It's it's a, a good mix between uh, tips for for like practical advices and and theory. It's a, it's a really good book. Cool. So um so so in, you, in how, the, how did you come it, up? Oh, go ahead, Andrew. Go ahead.
1: No, I was just about to say the same thing. In that book, the the other thing, obviously, it's the it's the premise of the book too. You have all the different chapters, but then you have it interspersed. You have all the lenses. Like, where did you come up with that idea or that concept to to put lenses to the game developer and ask them questions?
2: Yeah, it's funny. So back when I started writing the book, right? So I started writing it er, like 2003, I guess. There really weren't many game design books out. There were maybe, I don't know, five. And one or two of them were were pretty good, and the rest were terrible. Um, and I was thinking about, boy, how can I do this? And I, I talked to a lot of, you know, old game, develop, game designers, and told them, I'm thinking about trying to write this book about game design. And they told me, you know what, nope, you can't do it. You can't do it, and a book about game design won't work, because different advice uh, works in different situations, so any advice you give somebody is going to be wrong in some situations and right in other situations, so you just anything you do is going to be wrong, so that's why there aren't books about game design, they said <laughs> and I thought about that, and I said, well, that's, I get that, that kind of makes sense but I, I kept thinking, you know, but just there's, people should, there are some key questions people should ask themselves, and suddenly I had this big insight, questions can never be wrong <laughs> and they might be irrelevant. That question is not important right now, but it can't be wrong. And realizing that, I I really like that as a kind of a hook, as as like I'm not the book's not going to be about just giving you advice. It's going to be focusing on ask yourself these questions. And I like that a lot. And so that's basically you know what the what the idea of the lenses was. And I guess the other part of inspiration for me was one of my favorite books is uh, A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander which mm-hmm. is this collection of different architectural patterns. And I, I liked it um, in the form of kind of a big list that way. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, so that was a little bit of an inspiration
0: as, as well. Nice. Yeah, um, for the listeners that haven't uh, read The Art of Game Design or they don't know um, about this book, Chell uh, also has an application called The Art of Game Design uh, where he has a collection of all the lenses that he has throughout the book so like he said the lenses are um, questions that you can ask relevant to a topic uh, on a specific step in the development of your game that will help you um, see if, if you're in the, in the right path or, or you're taking a, a wrong decision or you're over uh, looking something so definitely I, check out the application. Go ahead. I listen.
2: could I could give an example right here because so there's there's the uh, the book of course has all the lenses and there's in the in the current edition there's 113 different lenses, and also like you say the free app also has them, um, but there's also a deck of cards which is I which is what I right. prefer to use. Uh, I'll just I'll just give an example like the the first lens is the lens of emotion. And it's got questions like, what emotions do I want my player to experience? What emotions are players having when they play the game now? And how can I bridge the gap between the emotions players are having and the emotions I'd like them to have? And so it's, you know, lots and lots of questions, which is what game design is. You're always asking questions about how this, how can this thing be better.
0: Okay, cool. You see there's a, a, a relationship between player game and experiences in your game in in your in your book that uh i really like would like to to listen your opinion about that what is the relationship between these three aspects because in the book you mentioned that the designer creates an experience however the game is not the experience the experience is the interaction so yeah it's
2: it's it's very important i think for everybody to anybody working on games it's you get you're always so you're always thinking about your game and your game and your game and your game and the, it's always important to remember that the game is kind of a dead thing A game is a static object that does not move unto itself it just sits there and if no one ever plays your game like nothing ever happens well the the reason you make the game is because you want people to play it and you don't actually care about the game what you care about is the experience they have when they play it and so um, one thing I really try and uh, get people to focus on is don't don't think about your game every second instead what you really care about is the experience you want people to have when they play your game and if you take the point of view instead of focusing on designing your game, if you focus on designing that experience and what is it going to take to make that experience be great, then uh, you're, you're in a much better place.
1: Yeah, that, that reminds me of the story. Like uh, Whatever people think of uh, the York Star Wars movie that came out this year, so, Episode Force Awakens. I loved it. I thought it was great. But there's the stories about when they sat down to go into that i mean some people might say for ill but jj J. abrams set them down and said what do we want people to feel like now what happens in the story what not all the things we want to happen but what do we want to have those emotions coming out of the theater and i thought that's kind of neat and when i read this in the book it reminded me of that it, it's it's <laughs> that because that's mainly what you're doing you're going for the effect that it has on them and yeah. their thoughts so, so that's pretty neat
2: yeah, how could anyone not like that new movie? It was awesome. I don't know. I, I don't know why I'm qualifying it. I love it. I th- I saw. It yeah, five you're you're, times, so. you're super nervous at the <laughs> yeah. Star Wars haters on the uh, on the on the line here. But
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a, a a really good point because that's why like companies should um, like study their their player like well game game companies study their players and. Uh, what type of things they like and study the market, so to to see what's the best way to give them an experience that they would love and and they would recommend to to their friends. So yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Cool. All right. Well, we'll move on to another little bit. Like I said, we mentioned to you offline that we've picked a couple little bits out of the book that we like. This, if you, I mean, if people haven't read this book, you should one, pick it up immediately. But two, it's like you'll be lost in it for weeks or months because. I find myself reading a chapter, and you have the books you mentioned already. I've have on my, I've bought some already. At the end of the chapter, you say further reading, then you go down this hole of that, and it's like, oh wait a second, I haven't gone back to the the main book yet.
2: But um, (laughs) yeah right, yeah. I added added the further readings in the second edition, and I'm I'm glad I put that in there. A lot of lot of people seem to appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's really great. Um, one of the the, the the first concepts, I think I might have seen this kind of around the first edition, <clears throat> I think when I borrowed somebody else's book, and then we later bought the second edition, but the idea of the four basic elements, and I we, we use that in that episode about scope and some other times as kind of more of a functional thing of looking at what the game requires to help you figure out scope, but I also, I like those four ideas because you kind of, you go deeper into it through all aspects later in the book about how those four areas or general categories for how you can not only judge your production scope and all those things of your game, but also where you're coming from, what ideas are you doing, what is the main purpose of this game, you know, where there might be some weaknesses, you know, like you're saying, the mechanics, the, the four areas are, again, a mechanics store, aesthetics, technology, but I love, the, I love that idea of those. Can you talk to a little bit about like kind of categorizing those and any experiences you had and where you came up with that?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that that had been a thing that been on my mind a lot. I, mean, I remember back at Disney just trying to get a handle on uh, the nature of these experiences because when I started at Disney and we were, I was part of the VR studio and we were trying to create these virtual reality experiences for theme parks, they it didn't make any sense for us to just imitate the video games that are out there because our, our our context was totally different. And so we had people in the studio who were very story-focused and people who were very art-focused and people who were very technology-focused and not very many people who were very game-design-focused. And I just found it necessary to start to kind of break things out. And now, and for for years, I only, I only talked about it as three things. I talked about it as technology um, game mechanics and story and I I always for whatever reason I guess this is maybe partly a Disney thing I lumped aesthetics into story and right. I guess I just loved the idea of it trying to be three things but over time it just became clear that no this really wants to be four things the the issues of your of your aesthetics and the issues of your story are really very different and so I said yeah let's let's break those out I mean when you when you break things into elements like this, it's it's you know you're never going to do it perfectly. There's always questions of overlap, but i found that those four things are really worth kind of breaking <laughs> up, thinking about separately, right? Because um, you got you got your story issues, your art issues, your technology issues, and your game mechanics issues, and they're 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 all they're all very different, but they all need to be in harmony.
1: And when you're starting, like say for instance, just in you know practical example like at Shell Games or something, you guys are starting projects or you might know, do client work or original work. Do you kind of start from that aspect with the, that perspective of those four areas and where you, you can improve?
2: What? I always like what uh, Ryan Renesius says, you know, he's a board game designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and people always say, hey where do you you've done hundreds of board games. Where do you where do you start? Where's the right place to start? And and he he, he says that you can't always start in the same place because you'll if you do, you'll always finish in the same place. And and I think that's right. Different projects start very very differently, but um, some projects are very technology driven. You know, we, we've got one coming out for the the Google Tango coming out in a couple. Oh cool, yeah, we missed that at Unite last oh. year. Yeah, yeah, and that that's I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. But like there, you're starting with totally your technology is defined. Like here's what your technology does, and now can you make a great experience that surrounds that? Other times, you like your story is. Is locked in, you know. Um, and other other times, there's a certain art style that's locked in, and other times, you know, certain certain game rules are locked in. And so it, it always comes down to figuring out, all right, what do what do I have flexibility in, and what don't I have flexibility in, and what am I trying to achieve, and then how can I get these things to support each other in a way that really is is, is optimal. And and I really like to be able to brainstorm these different categories separately cuz it's mm-hmm. always it's always really tempting when you come up with a new idea to just focus on the idea, you know, this idea comes to you and it's like, "Oh man, it's it's a virtual reality thing for the vibe and it's got these pink monkeys and it's it's got this beautiful cartoon art design and the and there's this whole story of the monkey's family." And you get the whole thing in your brain. But then if you really want to work the idea, then you need to be able to break it into pieces. Does it have to be on the Vive? Does it have to be a story about their family? Like, what is the game mechanic actually? And, and you know, do they have to be pink? You know, all that stuff. And so uh, the, uh, the, the the Elemental Tetra, those four categories can be really useful for breaking things down.
1: Yeah, I like that because that ties into the one of the other, my other favorite parts of this is that we talk about all the time is uh, just the idea generation and that part in the in that chapter you talk about stating the problem. And we've t- yeah. we, we've had episodes about GDD where we've get game design documents where we, I know you have chapters later on about that too. But we've given advice and we're just kind of giving people a template to use if they, you know, just an idea if they are having problems, you know, in the production process, but the one thing we do no matter tell people no matter what is that idea is that you, you got to what problem are we solving here? What yeah. are we trying to do? Because not only does it help you brainstorm because, you know, like, you know, like, as everybody knows that you know, creativity only happens with limitations in that sense. And that's where you get the best ideas because you actually have a problem you're trying to solve. We found that also what's so cool about that is that later on, you know, months down in that production process, when you're making those compromises, you know, to figuring out what things to cut or we don't have budget to fix this or do this, you don't end up cutting the initial thing that you had you excited about the game, like the crux of the project. Right. Having that kind of mission statement, I think, is so neat. And then you talk about that in, in the book.
2: Yeah, it's lens number 14, lens of the problem statement. What problem am I really solving? And every project I get involved with, it always comes down to that, especially, you know, I'm doing more and more educational type games, educational transformational games. And those, you really got to be straight about what problem am I actually solving?
0: Yeah, and I guess it also um, depends on how that, how inspiration um, strikes. Sometimes you have an idea that you want to make this beautiful world, and uh, but sometimes it's just that you want to make... you have a, a good gameplay with a certain controls, let's say the Vive controls that nobody has so far, and you want yeah. to make something based on that, and then you start <laughs> working on the idea.
1: Yeah. These type
0: of things uh, are are uh great when you separate them in the in the tetrad like you said and contribute to the idea.
1: Yeah, I was going to say too that I like the um how that chapter starts the idea part because this is something I I always think about and cuz we talked to a lot of developers and a lot of people that are very focused on video games, you know, and programming and video games and that's what they love and that's what they do. We have people in this on other, we have four, three other hosts of this show. They're not with us right now, but we have some that will go play games for eight hours a night if they could, right? And I come from, I've always thought that was weird because I come from like, I went to film school for a while. I was a graphic designer. I became a programmer. Then I moved into games and game design and stuff. And so for me, like I nerd out about. That. I love games, but I also nerd out about other stuff. And I appreciate in the book you have, you know, you're also a multidisciplinary. You enjoy reading and writing, you know, architecture and all these other things. And I think that's a great example. And I think that's always a great thing. You talk about the infinite inspiration thing, like how you got to get out of your house. You got to go see movies, yeah. go to a museum, go, you know, go to the park, because that's when the best ideas come, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah no, insp- inspiration can come from anywhere.
0: Exactly. I- I always love
2: the story about Henry Ford. Uh, uh, you know, he got the he invented the assembly line for automobiles, and he got the idea from a, a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. And he 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 happened to be getting a tour of a slaughterhouse for some reason, and he saw that the way they would you know process the meat was totally an assembly line method. The assembly line hadn 't been invented yet, but it really had it was there in the slaughterhouse you know there was there was one guy who would deal with one part of the cow and one guy would deal with another part of the cow and he's looking at it he's like why don 't we build cars this way why don 't we build anything this way and so he took that concept and brought it over and that 's the thing I mean ideas they can come from anywhere
1: yeah, and I think even in the game development world too it's even more applicable than even if you write a novel or a movie sometimes because sometimes those are key issues. Like, well, what if there was a story about this with games are usually about systems, you know, <laughs> and the world is full of systems, you know, how the ducks yeah, sure. are feeding at the park, how whatever. And, you know, I'm sure you get into that as you, you know, working on educational games, like teaching systems thinking and how they're so great for that. But that's, what's yeah. so great about games is like, you can literally go outside. Is like, Oh, traffic, that's a system. That could be a game.
0: Yeah. Besides, when I did you're, that
2: pitch. When you <laughs>
0: uh, I was going to say when you're um, like, too much time in, in your computer focusing on one problem you're missing something you have to get out and see like what other people think. It's like uh, uh, like in the deva log the, the, the rubber duck method just explain the problem and see if some someone else can't see what you can't. So just go ahead and get out see like people playing or systems and you will get uh, fresh ideas.
2: Yeah, I always think uh, you get a lot of these studios where they brag about, you know, hey, you never have to leave the studio. We give you free food and that free they meals. That means you to stay there <laughs> 12 hours a day. You never have to go anywhere. <laughs> and not not only is that just depressing. That's just yeah. a depressing idea to start with. But also, I don't I don't think that's very good for creativity. I think it really right. does help your creativity to, to to get out. When I... when. Uh, uh, we're at a different location now but we used to be located right next door to this 24 hour convenience store and one of our ongoing jokes was when we had a hard problem everyone would say you know I think we need to go over to Kogo's all the good ideas are over at Kogo's and it was true you'd go over (laughs) and get a slurpee or whatever and then you'd you'd come back and you're like I know exactly what to do now I know know just what we're supposed to do even though you'd been in the building kind of thinking about it for 6 hours you'll leave for 10 minutes and suddenly it makes sense
0: Exactly. It's Trust. like when you're tired and you go to sleep, and then sleeping, you know, like when you wake up, you know what, what the solution is. It's yeah. just it's, trusting yeah.
1: that subconscious, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, Jesse, one thing that, um, first of all, let me I love fighting games. And this question is about one of the problems in fighting games. Could you talk about game balancing methodologies?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh yeah, so game balancing is always really hard and fighting games, like you say, are a really hard kind of game uh to balance in fact, some people argue that fighting games are designed not to be balanced um That's that the, that the, the that the uh part of the fun of uh, playing a fighting game is finding the imbalances, because that's you're trying to find, the strategies that are going to win. And so you're looking for the imbalances, and the idea is that by the time you find them all, a new version has come out. And so you, now you have to buy that one instead. Uh, but in terms of balancing, there are so many ways uh, to go about it, and it's really different for different games, because there are so many different kinds of balance in the book. I list I don't know a ten, a dozen, I forget something like that. A whole bunch of different popular ways to uh, of the things that you might balance in your game because you balance so many things. You balance co-op, uh, cooperation versus competition, and you balance is the game fair, and you balance is the game too easy, is the game too hard, um, is is the game too simple. There's so many different things that that you balance. And really, when it comes down to it, most of the ways that you actually do it come from playing it and seeing how it feels. But then there's a lot of shortcuts you can take. Mathematical modeling is a great way to uh, to sometimes get a handle on things. Um, but it's it's different in uh, in in different cases. But the the key question is always, you know, do I like how this game feels? And it's it's hard to say. It like you look at a game like like Dark Souls Great um, game. right <laughs> yeah. and a lot of people would argue wow this game is balanced wrong it's balanced too hard but it turns out it's balanced just right for people who like a really hard game and other yeah. people say i hate this game this isn't the game for me so this is what's so hard about balancing it's hard to know what is the perfect balance it comes down to what is the right balance for this game, for the audience that's going to like it and play it. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, as much as you wish it could all be mathematical and objective, a lot of game balancing ends up having to be very subjective.
1: Yes, part of that, I mean, that's the stuff that fascinates me about Dark Souls, is that I do not like hard games. I will not play you know any c- crazy hard platformer. I, I just don't like them, but Dark Souls is probably one of my favorite top five games of all time. Just because I I gave it a chance, and then once you get into it, it's like, oh, because I think the difference is, I mean, as as much as some of Dark Souls feels weird and the controls, some of it feels unfair. It feels very fair. There is a definite skill curve that you feel yourself getting good at, and I think that fairness is something that it's it's almost an inoculation to the hardness of a game. If it feels yeah, like I it's just, go ahead.
2: Oh, I was gonna say I I do think one of the important parts in it is how fixed the game is, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of randomness in it. Right. And I think if there was, if there was randomness and it and it and it beat your ass, like you would just be mad. You would say that well that doesn't feel fair. That was totally random. But there's nothing random in it. Everything is exactly the same every time you play it. The enemies are always in exactly the same spots. And so it gives you this ability to sort of learn the game um, and it's hard to say it's not fair because well the game is just what it is and it's right there and you right.
0: can try it again and again and again and you can you can kind of learn your way through it um, so um, I guess sometimes like on balancing the game uh, like continue with the uh, analogy of the fighting game so if people yeah. if fighters have different abilities like taking those characters with their abilities to uh, like the maximum would be. Like, it's still fun for the player. Because it has to figure out how to, to how to fight with, with this specific character that is fast or another one that is, is slower but stronger.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, a fighting game is bad if you've got one character who just can beat everybody. Um, that's bad fighting game design because then it makes all the other characters irrelevant. But usually, there's some kind of rock-paper-scissors structure where well this character beats that one, but that one beats this one, and this one beats that one, um, and that kind of circular uh, balance, um, that, you know, is, is what makes the makes the thing work. And and it's funny like that that circular balance. I mean, we see it in so many games. We even see it in nature. I was reading about these uh, lizards, weirdly, that like I don't remember the exact. Um, I don't remember the exact species of lizard, but the whole idea is uh, when the female lizards are choosing male lizards, it's this whole weird thing where if they have to choose between a red and a yellow, they'll choose the red. And if they have to choose between a red and uh, an orange, they'll choose the orange. So you figure like, okay, orange beats red, uh, red beats yellow. Uh, But then if they have to choose between yellow and orange it turns out yellow beats orange and so That's it's weird. this weird oh, yeah. it's, it's this whole weird thing where it it's everything is context uh sensitive and you know it turns out we like we like the same thing we like that balance in in games as well
1: and now it's even more interesting too i think because fighting games of the past is like well we balanced it now it's set but now you have the league of legends and dodo world where <laughs> as they patch up with each season it's balanced but then as new strategies come up and it feels like as the pro teams and people figure out something, they totally change the board again every time so that everybody, that meta keeps evolving, which is just basically the balance, essentially.
2: Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, and it's weird. Like, it kind, like, unbalancing games is kind of a business model. It's sort of a weird right. thing to talk about. It's more intriguing. But that's how it is. As soon as you've, like, learned... If, once you've, like, learned everything with a fighting game, in a sense, it gets a little stale. Right. You know, not totally stale, but a little stale, because you've, you, you've squeezed a lot of the juice and exploration out of it. And so th- when they come out with a new one, it never has the same balance. They change it up, so you have new stuff to explore. Same thing with, uh, like, collectible card games, like Magic the Gathering. They basically unbalance it every time they put out a new, uh, right. a new version. And then everybody has to fight about, well, wait a second, what's the right way to do this? And everybody has to learn it, and once they've learned it, like okay we're gonna we're gonna rebalance it again with a new a new version everybody wants to explore that
1: well that kind of ties into your thing like that's the experience that meta is the experience of those games it's not necessarily yeah. playing the card game it's learning the new the min max of that new set I guess
2: yeah yeah no it's it's a kind of puzzle solving which is you know you'd think it would be I don't know you you you'd think it would be kind of broken that there would be the game has some kind of maxes and mins in it but nope that's just people like that, they like discovering they feel super smart when they find one of the secrets and they're like hey you know if I do this and I do this I've got an advantage over everybody they feel really smart when they find it. Um, Yeah that's
0: one of the secrets you have to give challenges to people to see if they can figure it out and when they do it's like you say it's it, it feels great well they subs- it's a sense of accomplishment
1: well, and they made those they games can. pastimes and not just games where people no, i will play this for 10 years now and not just oh i played it and i finished it and now we're moving on
2: yeah it's it's funny the difference between i mean there are some games where that wouldn't be acceptable like if, if that was true in chess or backgammon that would not be all right right like yeah. Hey you know new piece came out in chess like the dragon I'm like what what no that's, <laughs> no, that's not acceptable uh, for that game but uh, but other games you know that that dynamism is uh, is what they thrive on
0: Cool. so uh, moving on the interface would you um, like to give some tips about uh, how to make a, a right interface? In in games, and then we will talk a little bit more about VR UI VR. But let's start with the normal one.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean interface is such a hard part of games. Um, There's there's so many different ways to go about it. There's so many games that have kind of bad interfaces because making game interfaces is really hard. Um, the, The two main ways you go about it are either top down or bottom up, and top-down basically means i'm just going to copy some other game (laughs) i'm i'm doing a first-person shooter and that's been done before i'm just going to copy another first-person shooter i like and maybe i'll tune little parts of it and that's kind of top-down design and then you have bottom up design where you take a totally different approach where you say you know what we're just going to go all the way down to the bottom on this we're going to we're going to invent our ui from the ground up because there's something different about our game and we're just going to figure out piece by piece like what are the parts that people really want and really need and that's the question you need to ask yourself what is because an interface is all about getting people the information that they want when they need it what information do they want what do they need how are you closing those feedback loops um and uh, and how are you doing that effectively? I, like I remember when I worked on Toontown, one of the big UI questions we had was how to do the chat interface. And we had a lot of people at the time who were EverQuest players, and EverQuest had a certain way of doing its chat window, uh, a way that I thought kind of sucked personally. But <laughs> there, a lot of people were used to it. They were just used to this ugly chat window at the bottom of the screen, and. And they said, yeah, of course, we're just going to do that because I'm used to that, and that's what we do. And I thought, wow, first of all, I hate it. It's ugly, and it makes you not look at the characters. And then secondly, we're designing a game for kids. I don't think this same system of chat is going to work. And so we kind of just blew it up and said, okay, let's 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 look at it from different points of view. Like, from an aesthetic point of view, how do would I want chat to work? It's a cartoon world. I'd want, like, I don't know, like cartoon balloons coming out of people's mouths that's how i would really like the chat to work but that had all kinds of problems because what if somebody's behind you you know and i can't see them how's that going to work and so we invented like a whole system to make that work um and we really approached that whole thing from the bottom up and at the same time we had to do a friends list thing and we didn't approach that from the bottom up we just flat out stole it at the time this was a long (laughs) time ago now this was like, what, 98 we were doing this Uh, AOL was super popular and we just said hey, everybody knows the AOL friends list system let's just steal that so we just just took it and put it in the game (laughs) and uh, so there's times, you know, there's times you need to invent and there's times you need to borrow.
1: Yeah, I like that idea, too, when you mentioned about putting stuff on the list and the prioritizing of those items. Uh, that's, that was always my thing in graphic design. People like, say you're making a flyer. People like, I just put it on there and make it look pretty. I was like, well, no, a lot of people don't realize even graphic design or those things, it's about solving a problem still.
0: You're, yeah, not,
1: yeah. you're not just making something flashy looking. That's the problem we had with flash Websites back in the day, I was like, "Yeah, this is kind of cool looking, but I don't know where the home button is. I don't know how to actually navigate any of this." But I like that idea of prioritizing that information hierarchy of what needs to be shown because I think a lot of developers who aren't necessarily aesthetically leaning, they get to the point they remove the kind of the default GUI with just like, "Let's just make it look nice and stuff." But everything's the same, you know, size and everything, and they don't really. I love the idea of the book you talk about the channels and think of those different channels and the different layers and how there are, there is an information hierarchy of that stuff. And it really is important. You need to, you're trying to, you know, communicate a message and it's hard in games because you have so much information sometimes on a screen. You're just, but at least you need to, you know, start with a list and go down it and the things that aren't important you need to sometimes, you know, get, get rid of.
2: Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. You got to figure out how, you know, what, what means do I have of communicating information and then how should I use it? Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a tough, tough call. It takes a lot of iteration, and also it really helps to have people who are good at UI design because mm-hmm. uh, that really is just an art form unto itself.
0: Yeah, but um, how... Well, those. this is for the listeners, guys. Um, okay, we have those good practices, uh, but now forget about all that we are in the VR world. <laughs> Everything changed. Now you cannot yeah. put uh, like a menu in front of the face of the player because it's a, uh, most of the time, first person view is like covering their eyes. So, yeah. um, one of the uh, good practices that I heard is uh, adding your UI to the elements in your world. Like, let's say you have a, um, big watch or something like that, like in um, Fallout 4, that uh, you have this thing in your in your wrist and you can look at, okay, that's that's my UI now, but you also have your lives, I don't know, somewhere else. Um, how, what can you tell us about um, UI in, in VR?
2: Yeah, UI in VR is a really, really funny thing. I mean, a lot of game developers really stumble on it because they have forgotten how weird and stupid UI in games really is like a life bar floating up in the corner like that is so weird and unnatural it right. like it is <laughs> and but but people are so used to it that they consider that normal and natural but VR is like the real world and just like if you saw a life bar like floating around in the real world you'd say what the hell is that that is what is this crazy thing and so it's very strange because In a lot of ways, getting VR interfaces right is about making them like the real world. And gamers have a really hard problem with this. Like in in the game uh, we're getting ready to release, uh, "I Expect You to Die," it cracks me up when we play test it because so there's there's a part there's a part in the game where a laser beam is shooting at your face, and you need to get out of the way. And it's funny when I play test it with little kids, they just duck. They just <laughs> like yeah. and they duck out of the way. Or or <laughs> or, if I, or like you know, if grandma comes into play, she ducks. She gets out of the way. But I've watched gamers get shot in the face with that laser five and six times in a row, and then they restart and they get shot again. And they restart, and I'm like, buddy, what are you doing? They're like, I'm looking for the dodge button. Which one of these buttons makes yeah. me dodge? And I'm like, no, that's no. Like and and then you have to you always it's always the same phrase. You say, Hey, um, if this was the real world, what would you do? They say, I would, Oh and they suddenly realize there you go. Like, Oh yeah. I can actually interact as if this was the real world. So that's the peculiar part about ui in uh, in vr is you really do want to integrate as much of it into the environment as you possibly can and make that as real a- as you possibly can um yeah. and yeah certainly the notion of like in in screen-based games the screen is your fixed object in vr-based games Tip, if, if they have hands, your hands are usually your fixed object, and so people are starting to kind of work some of those more abstract things, how many lives do I have, etc., kind of into your hands. We we did that in our uh, we did this game, Water Bears VR for the Vive, and we, like, we had a so it, that's a game all about building things with pipes. And, I, and like, you've got, like, 50 pieces of pipe, and you've got to gl- stick them all together. And there was this big argument about, like, well, where should the pipes be? Where am I getting them from? And uh, we we ultimately decided, like, you'd have kind of a pallet that would be on one hand, and then, and then you'd use the other hand and grab pieces from the pallet, kind of like an artist with a brush and a pallet. Like um, in tail brush? Uh, yeah, kind of like oh. Intel brush yep oh, okay yeah um, except the difference is that here you actually have physical objects that you're grabbing from the palette and placing out in the world
0: oh, okay,
2: um, gotcha. as as opposed to just kind of uh, just just kind of painting um, but it's 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 tough. you gotta take it case by case. Um, uh, one of the things that we find fascinating like a very typical game, development technique is uh, white boxing, right? You're working on a level, and instead of like arting up the whole level, you white box it, which means you make, you know, you you make a really crude version of it. It's got a bunch of white and gray boxes all around, and then you run through the level. Well, we've started a new prototyping technique we call brown boxing, and the way that works is you don't use a computer at all. You get a bunch of old Amazon boxes, and you actually just build your level in your In your workspace (laughs) and you just walk around and do it and you can tell like oh wait these these things should be closer to each other these things should be farther apart and you get it right in reality and then once you got it right in reality then you bring it in oh that's interesting vr because like because in vr you care about all this stuff about how big is everything and can i reach this and can i reach that and and how you know how far are things apart with my with my hands um so, I mean, I love it because I love inventing, and this is making everybody invent. There are a lot of people who don't like inventing. They just want to copy. And so the copiers are having a really hard time with this. Uh, but people who like inventing, it's its a good time right now.
1: Very cool. Um, one of the other issues, uh, not issues, one of the other subjects from the book I want to touch on before we get your final thoughts about the future of the game industry um, is the interest curve section. Uh, yeah. I love this section. I'm a big old <laughs> Hero with a Thousand Faces fan, right? And I like how you, you know, we've always heard the the interest peaking in a game from the Bungie's 30 Seconds a Fun Thing that they made popular, and that was a big... But I like how you tie it in, looking at the game over the course of the entire game and having it really follow kind of a hero's journey, but kind of a... A climax to denouement and like it feels like there's a buildup. Can you talk a little bit about that and how important that is if you're like kind of analyzing your own game as you're, because you mentioned the story about how you had the ride and there's a flat part of that and you just said well maybe we should just cut it out or give them the option to cut it out and that was still you realized that was actually the right answer?
2: Yeah, so this is the thing I learned Um. so I used to I used to be a circus performer, right? I was a professional juggler and um when with with my first real job I was kind of apprenticed to this guy who was a magician. And uh my partner and I had been doing this juggling act and it was it had good parts and it had bad parts and uh and we were confused because we thought all the parts were good and we didn't understand why the audience liked some parts of the show and didn't like other parts. And the the guy who ran our show troop, who was a magician, he sat us down after, and he says, Here, guys, let me... I can explain it to you. Like, your show should look like this. And he drew this little series of ascending peaks... And he says, but it doesn't. Right now it looks like this. And he drew this kind of other shape that was that was sort of less beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you just need to move your pieces around. Right. You've got all the right pieces. They're just in the wrong order. You need to get them so that they're like this. And you should read this book. And that was The Magic and Showmanship by Henning Nelms. And the whole idea of interest curves I totally stole out of there. He describes it... Uh, in Magic and Showmanship, I mean, this book was written in, like, 1956 or something, <clears throat> he describes it very, very clearly about what constitutes um, a good interest curve, and it, it had stayed with me all these years. I mean, I used it uh, at Disney, and I taught with it at the school, and I, and, uh, you know, I use the interest curve notion every day, and there's a lot of subtlety to the interest curve. I mean, there's there's the notion that it isn't just peaks that get bigger, because the peak at the beginning you need some kind of hook that really gets people interested that needs to be bigger than the second peak Mm -hmm. and then you want the peaks to kind of start ascending again but you also have to have parts where it goes down it's not just about gradually getting more exciting you need to give people chances to breathe and relax it's like an album
1: yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually,
2: everything. Yeah. Everything movie, yeah. that you like. Everything that you like. Every story, every album, every song. Uh, every lecture, every, right?
1: yeah.
2: every lecture, every comedian, every performance, every YouTube video. Um, anything that you like. like. If it's well-structured, it has this same structure. And it's sort of trippy because once you see that structure um you start to see it everywhere because it's in everything it's why songs are all have that same structure it's why they all have three verses and a bridge after the second verse it's like it's because something about us as human beings really likes this shape and this shape is is uh obviously naturally important in 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 games um and yeah, so it's it is it is a an important part of the book because I, I found again and again that once people once you kinda of clue them into this kind of pattern, um, it it can be very helpful to help you make good things.
1: Right, and I, like I like how you I like how you the part I mean you break those down into the inherent interest, the poetry presentation, projection. But I like how that follows a almost a... Troubleshooting mechanic Because a lot of people can ride a yeah. long time On that inherent interest Like I got a great concept for a game It's really cool And people naturally like this And it's weird Like whatever it is And then it just falls flat And they're like what can we do I was like let's snazz it up You know let's make the poetry A little pre- presentation a little bit better Let's do that And then sometimes like well Okay it's still kind of falling flat But that projection You talk about the projection being Just the inherent You know empathy, what it, I guess it's the empathy Or their interaction with it Where they feel a part of it and that's yeah. that's and it's not about one of the all three of those things being high or low. It's just about just like just with the four areas, you know, the tra- tetrad. you said, like it's about some kind of balance, or at least there's some kind of mid level those things are reaching.
2: Yeah, like Pokemon Go's a really ex- interesting example that way. I mean, it had huge inherent interest right. in the beginning because ev- everybody loves Pokemon, and here's the thing that's kind of new. And if the thing succeeds in the long run, it's going to be because it's got meaningful social connections between people. Yeah. But the danger that it has is it may not get there. I mean, it, it, it may not get to that point. Right now we're seeing huge drop-offs with it because the game design just wasn't totally sustainable. Now, a lot of people are wondering, well, when this next version comes out, maybe they're going to fix a lot of those things, and, and they'll have stronger interest curve, and they'll have better emotional resonance, and uh, we'll find out, I guess. But the, but that stuff really matters. It makes or breaks your your game. Totally. How the, that's
1: a, that's just as important, just as a side tangent. How because I it felt like with that, it felt like they released the game and it got popular, and then as they made because the big changes were they kind of made stuff harder. Like, well, this is the game we initially wanted it to be. That's a dangerous thing, like st- designing in the public sometimes like that because they cause what it felt like to people is that that's a monetary decision. You know, you want us to the you know you want to pull that carrot out further but it, with this like you're saying it's like can you actually strengthen that design as it keeps going or is that something that people are going to think see the you know they see behind the curtain there
2: oh yeah man it's tough because it because the truth is it always is a monetary decision right, you yeah. talking to, and, th- and this is what makes it tough when you're making free to play games um uh there's different ways to kind of have me get you to pay maybe i get you to pay because i made sequels and you love them and they're super good but maybe also i you know i did i did something tricky i i put something in there that you want but now i'm going to charge like a lot of money for it and and it can it can feel kind of tawdry and kind of cheaty and and it that is like free to play is the worst to design it's just you just it's so hard to do it in a way that feels fair and everybody feels good about it and you actually make money I, I don't envy folks who have to do innovative, th- free-to-play solutions, uh, which is exactly what Niantic <laughs> has to do with, yeah, with Pokemon I, I guess they couldn't have
1: predicted that type yeah. of reaction.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, about I, I think you can predict it, yeah. people. Anything you do that's going to make you more money, people are just going to be angry. Right.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of a story. This uh, weekend, uh, I, I recently released um, The Hangman. It's uh, the first game that I made, um, like, as an independent developer. And it's just a, uh, another copy, like, clone of the Hangman game, but with 36 different um, game modes and different languages, and it looks um, really pretty. Like, we made cool. it, like, um, uh, hand-drawn in an in a old paper. And uh, the way, uh, again, it's free-to-play, <laughs> and, again, uh, I monetized it. I said okay let's add um but let's put it in um lives so you have five lives and when you lose you can watch an ad and get three lives. I was like I think that's pretty fair. Like when you lose in Angry Birds and you watch an ad you get just one life. I'm getting them three. And if you want to um like double your score sometimes uh you can watch an ad. And this weekend a guy um wrote a review with one star It was like no lives are not um like something like fair in this game i was like dude let me make a living <laughs> what are you talking about oh uh, it's
2: so, the worst the yeah. store is the worst <laughs> it's it's so it's just so hard yeah God, everybody everybody just wants you to give everything
1: for free. People are entitled to entertainment these days, right? That's what
2: they're doing. There needs they're, Oh my god, <laughs> there needs to be new content every 3 days and you better come to their their house and scrub their toilet or like you're not you're going to get one and star. And then they'll it's, give you five stars rough, if
1: you man. do that. That's I love the ransoming no, reviews. No, <laughs> they won't though. You might get 3, yeah. you know,
2: that's how you'll get that's how you'll avoid getting one. It's it's tough, man. It is really tough.
0: Yeah, so okay to kind of finish the interview um there's a an interesting concept that you mentioned in your book is the future of game communities could you tell us a little bit more about that
2: yeah i mean it's uh there's we're seeing a lot of interesting evolution with sort of just the nature of uh communities and the way people interact online uh, we saw a lot of experimentation when mmos happened and then when facebook and social networking started being part of games and all your friends were in there that was kind of interesting and i think we're gonna continue to see that expand and grow and i think honestly virtual reality is going to be a big part of that because that's going to be the most social medium we've ever had
0: nice yeah that reminds me um uh the it was our previous episode Andrew with Katie Play mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's uh um a way that you can uh, like share the community between games so I'm pretty sure that um it it, it would be a good addition to to what you have to say in the in the book I mean I haven't read that part yet that's why I wanted to ask you about it Gotcha Yeah I mean
2: the the the, the business of community design is is very interesting because at that point you're not just thinking about what is an individual person like but what do a group of people want from each other and how can my game help facilitate that does this group of people do they want to compete with each other to see who's best do they want just to kind of, do they want an icebreaker so they can have people to chat with um do they do they want to help somebody and have that good feeling of helping somebody out there it's 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 really uh interesting um and and can be very powerful but different communities are different you've got a design for each community like what the people who play eve online want in their community is 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 really different than uh than the i don't know community of people who uh who, who play console games, for example. Got
0: gotcha. you. Yeah, have in mind what the interests of your different niche for your game are. Yeah. Got gotcha. you.
2: Yeah, well, and, how, and how do they want to interact, and what do they consider acceptable behavior? Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's it's interesting.
0: Cool. Well, um Guys, I think that's it for today. It was an awesome interview. i kidnapped you long enough. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for being in the show, Jesse. It was right. a, seriously an honor to have you in, in the show.
2: Cool. Well, thanks so much. All right. Thanks.
1: All right. That was Jesse's shell of the art of game design, a book of lenses. And like I said, when we started that, uh, I mentioned it to him and I even mentioned to him offline that each one of these chapters of this book could be an hour long episode. So we really had to scratch the surface a little bit and hold ourselves back. I know we made an outline for this episode and we hit about uh, 30% of it. So we can't uh, thank him enough for coming on and you know answering our questions (laughs) as we kind (laughs) of dive deep into the book.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I guess um, we definitely have to have him back in the show um, later, maybe in a couple of months or something. Uh, yeah, and if you guys but, look him yeah. up
1: online, he does a he has a lot of. I mean, the he got really. I mean, he was famous for this book and other things, but he had he had a lot of attention from. I think it was a twenty ten Dice Talk. He gave at the Dice Conference they hold every year, which is another developer conference, but um. He gave this really cool thing and he was really thinking about gamification, you know, like beyond Facebook. Like he and it was a really thing that a really cool talk that blew a lot of people's minds. It was like, what if uh, you know, when you brush your teeth like in the future, what if you brush your teeth and you get uh every time you brush your teeth you get a percentage off your dental insurance because you're doing good behavior, you know, stuff like that. So, he's a dude that's uh, once you read the book it's pretty evident, but you can also watch a bunch of talks online that he's always thinking about not just only game design and game production, but how those affect the world, which I think is pretty cool. So definitely check out all this stuff. All right. Speaking of our game design and our game development, we thought we'd try a new segment on the show. Usually, this is the time we do Rapid Fire Roundup and we do uh, Game of the Week. And since it's just Eduardo and I tonight, we're going to go rogue and try something new. We've been talking <laughs> about this. You know, Obino you know, oh, and Ryan are out there in California. They don't know what we're doing. And Zach's. Playing Destiny or something. So we're going to go off script tonight (laughs) (laughs) and try something. We I think every now and then, instead of Game of the Week, we might do a little fun little segment called, I don't know what it's called, but it's basically what we're working on. You know, our personal, not our work project, because those are sometimes a lot of things we can't talk about. What
0: you're working on.
1: Yeah, what you're working on. But it's just like, because, you know, as we work in our day jobs, we all are full-time Unity developers, but we also are trying to push it and really make some cool indie projects. So, all right, Eduardo, what are you working on recently?
0: Okay, so I've been working on the marketing campaign for The Hangman. Nice. Uh, Yeah, you know, just uh, emailing some review websites, um, also publishing on uh, Screenshot Saturdays on on Facebook groups and uh, just... Uh, creating like taking screenshots of the of the game and uh, not only on Saturdays but in websites that pe- for people that want to learn English and posting like half of a, of a word to see if they can guess it. People like that type of. Uh, oh, that's cool like cause you, I, yeah,
1: yeah, because you don't know if, if this is your first episode and you're just coming for Jesse's show. <laughs> you're, you're you have a hangman game, but it also has multiple languages, so it has a little bit of, like, you do it in French, you can also know what the English and Spanish word, right?
0: Yeah, uh, exactly.
1: So that's pretty cool.
0: So I've been doing that. But also, since I finished my handman and I'm a little bit bored, I started <laughs> a new game, uh, which is going to be a VR game for the Vive, HTC Vive. Nice. Um, and, yes, it's going to be a fighting game. Your favorite. Yeah, my favorite. I, I, yeah, I decided to start it because I've been um, wanted to do a fighting game for a long time, and I was like, "Yeah, let, let's let's do this. Don't hold it anymore."
1: This is gonna be an epic.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> game
1: development process.
0: <laughs> Enough of me. What are you working on, Andrew? Uh, I'm working really
1: on. I think Zach's mentioned it a few times on the show before. That you you know you have your hangman and you have other projects. That's why Eduardo and I can't work on a game together because we both have too many ideas that we want to (laughs) do. Like, but I want to do my ideas. So, (laughs) so in parallel, we help each other. But I'm also working with Zach on a project. We wanted to start working on a few mobile games or just stuff to kind of get shipping, get stuff out the door. I had a you know that X and A game that came out a few years ago. Then I started a few others, but then my daughter got born and I got busy. But I wanted to kind of start back. Small, I mean, in the sense that, like you do with your Hangman, where you want to just practice getting some projects out the door and stuff that's really defined and really you know what it is. Yeah. So we, so we've been looking at a bunch of roguelike games, which is a really popular, like a well-known genre, and um, we're working on a sort of like a mobile roguelike game. It's turn-based. It's kind of gone through different iterations, but it's turn-based. And it's like a little cyberpunky kind of feel. So Zach and I, we figured out a nice pathfinding stuff. That's kind of what inspired his pathfinding episode a few weeks ago. <laughs> Cause mm-hmm. we're working on that. Um, and then I'm kind of started working through the menus and like the player systems and stuff. So it's right at that critical point. We're kind of about to hit over the edge and start really getting into just producing stuff. Cause we're figuring out all the little elements and systems, but it's fun, man. It's fun to actually work on a full-on game again that's not just a job you know yeah. stuff that, that like you get to do game. yeah you forget how much fun it is to really talk through decisions and and it's hard but i mean again like that now we've again this is our 50th episode and it's so crazy that we have 50 episodes so far <laughs> and what's cool about it, this perspective now when i made that other game like five years ago oh god it's five years ago that I have all this experience of talking to all you guys and developers and everybody. You know, we have this cool, we're trying to cheating a bit because we have this community where we've learned and had these awesome interviews like Jesse and other people. So we're trying to use that organization style and put that into our game. So it should be kind of, we're trying to finish it within the next few months. So hopefully maybe by the end of the year, we'll have something out. So we'll we'll, we'll keep you in touch.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So that's
1: what we're working on. I don't know what everybody else is working on.
0: Yeah, we will ask him later. Yeah, (laughs) we will ask him in in other episodes. So um, that's it for today. If you want to um, support the podcast um, and help us out, please um, check out Patreon slash the debug log. Uh, It's patreon.com slash the debug log, right? Right, yeah. Um, And you can um, donate something and help us support the podcast.
1: Yeah, and we're gearing up for hopefully Unite. We might make a fun appearance at Unite this year and hopefully maybe Extra Life too. So we're going to try to tie in some of those Patreon rewards with that. And it's going to be a busy fall. It's going to be cool stuff. So stay tuned to all those channels and also stay tuned to our Debug Lounge channel. We're a little behind. We got busy this summer, but we have a few interviews in the stack and we're editing those. That That's kind of becoming as we get fun interviews and people want to come on the show, we'll do them and then put them up. So definitely check that out soon. I think that's it. You know, we have the – also, the big thing, too, is there our Debug Lounge Facebook group. If you search for the Debug Lounge on Facebook, um, you can actually – you can request to join that, and we'll add you in there. And that's where we share stuff on a daily basis, all tips and tricks and nerdy stuff. And if you want to complain about your game or you just want to praise your game, you can do that there. We have fun.
0: Yeah.
1: So again, before we leave, we can't. We have to thank Jesse Shell again. This is one of our biggest interviews yet, and we it's it's so cool to have. We've learned a big lesson from doing. I've done from doing podcasts, you know, other podcasts I have, and this one. It's like <laughs> we're yeah, reading this book you, and lo- I, We're reading this book and loving it, but then you just realize maybe we should just ask them to come on the show. <laughs> yeah, and right? to his credit, he didn't hesitate. and He said yes, absolutely, and he even worked with us because we had scheduling difficulties. And he's like, no, yeah, awesome. You know, yeah. he, he sacrificed a Sunday night with his kids to come on the show. So it's pretty awesome. Oh,
0: that, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So Dude. if Jesse, probably she, he's going to listen to this episode. So thank you very much for, for your um, Sunday time.
1: Go buy the book. <laughs> 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 it's, no, it's worth it. It is. That. It is if I, I mean, that's I mean, literally. We of might put that it's on our site soon. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs>
0: but it was funny the way you said it. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? Go buy the book. <laughs> So, um, okay, that's it, guys. If you want, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, My name is at EduardoCF1989.
1: And I'm at at Andrew underscore Curry. That's C-U-R-R-I-E.
0: Okay, until the next episode. See you guys.
1: See ya.